Good morning. We're in Acts, becoming the church, stories of the first Jesus people. We're in Acts chapter 6. I'd like us to read it together. <clears throat> would like to back up just and pick up a, a couple of the verses from chapter 5, kind of set the backstory a little bit <clears throat> as we go into chapter 6. So let's begin at verse 41. By the way, I'm really happy about um, daylight savings time. Just thought I'd throw that in there. Uh, I'm a really a daylight savings time person. So, um, the days are longer, but my morning was a little shorter. How about yours? Uh, just one day, it's worth it. All right, let's begin at uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. In other words, for Jesus. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. That's the heart and soul, isn't it, of their lives. I mean, they suffer for the name. That is, they count it a blessing, a joy. It's, it's honorable. It's good to suffer for Jesus. And even though they've been threatened, they keep right on, right in the temple area. They keep right on day after day teaching and proclaiming Jesus is the Messiah. And they not only do it there, but they do it house to house. So this is, uh, this is the program, right? And it's centered on Jesus Christ. And look what happens in verse 1 of chapter 6. In those days, what days? Well, the days when they were in the temple, day after day, house to house, day after day, Jesus is the Christ. Braving, risking it all, you know, because they counted suffering as just more honor. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, that's very important. The, the NIV reads, the Grecian Jews, some of your translations like the New American Standard Bible read the Hellenistic Jews. It just means Jews that speak Greek. Now, why would Jews speak Greek? Well, these Jews had relocated to Jerusalem. The diaspora, if you've ever heard that word, the diaspora, it refers to their history when the Jews were dispersed or scattered. That's what the diaspora means, dispersed or scattered. Jews lived all over the Mediterranean world now. And in many cases, they came back to Jerusalem. They came back to Palestine, sometimes second generation. You know, children of Jews who had earlier been dispersed had returned to their homeland, and they were living there. And they gathered together because they speak the same language, they speak Greek. Even if they came from different parts of the, of the world because that was kind of like the English language. When I was growing up, the diplomatic language of, of the world was French and now it's, it's prominently English. 
And just about anywhere you go, you can, you can get by in English in the cities. Well, that's the way it was with Greek. And so these Jews are home, and they speak Greek. And what about those Jews who have never left? They grew up in Palestine. They've always lived in Jerusalem or in those environs. What do they speak? Well, they speak Aramaic primarily. And probably in the synagogue, they know some Hebrew, or they may be bar mitzvah definitely in Hebrew. So they know some Hebrew, but they're called Hebrew-speaking Jews or Hebraic Jews, some of the translations. So basically what we have are Jews who some speak Greek, some speak Hebrew or Aramaic in particular. Aramaic was the common language of that of that uh, area. So the Hellenistic or the I'm uneasy with Grecian Jews. It sounds like they are trying to grow their hair or something. Um, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and were to assume for the rest. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas from Antioch, and a convert to Judaism. All these seven have Greek names. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, verse 7. So, the word of God spread. Some read and or now. Uh, and or so, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Uh, when I was a kid, I I never saw a problem that I liked. I mean, a problem was a problem was a problem. Uh, A problem was not a positive thing. I resonated with Paul Anderson. He said, I have yet to see any problem, however complicated, which, when you looked at it in the right way, did not become still more complicated. That was the way I saw a problem. (laughs) I never met a good problem. And I hated math, so I have no positive entry in my dictionary for the word problem. Problems are bad. A problem, as I saw it, is bad, period. But that all changed, and it changed uh, suddenly, and I remember the occasion. I was growing in my faith. I was a relatively new believer. Uh, 
I was an intern and training for ministry. And I was on the staff of our youth ministry. And we had a problem. Kids. <laughs> Lots of kids. And actually, it wasn't the kids. It was the, it was the cleanup. It was the, it was the mess that they made. And uh, the mess was eating at me because as an intern, <laughs> that was under my responsibility. And so uh, I wanted, you know, I had the idea that we want all these kids, but we don't want the mess. So I'm thinking, let's, uh, let's impose some rules. Let me make some rules and we'll get this thing straightened out and we'll live in a perfect world. So I thought I would go talk to our youth pastor, Bill. And I did. And, and he, he generously and kind of, he just kind of chuckled at me and said five words that I have never uh, forgotten. And I'll tell you why I've never forgotten. Because I'd never heard them before. And those five words were, this is a good problem. Now, you know, I was thinking about this. This is probably not revelatory. You probably say that all the time. But that was new to me. I really meant it when I said a problem. I mean, you say we have a problem, and that, that is just one of the nastiest words I could imagine. I had never heard anybody say, this is a good problem. That was not English to me. He said, this is a good problem. And, and I, I've got to tell you, immediately, just immediately, uh, it was as though I had been sitting alone in a dark room, and Bill came in, pulled the curtains, and threw open a window, and light was flooding the room. He said, this is a good problem because the mess is evidence of God's bounty and blessing. The, the mess is because God is adding good, all these kids to us, and kids are messy. That's just the nature of it. But then he shared with me Proverbs 14:4, but he didn't open the Bible. He just said these words. I mean, he didn't even say, I am now going to share with you the Word of God in the King James Version. <laughs> he said, this is a good problem, John. It's evidence of God's blessing and bounty. And then he said, where there are no oxen, the crib is clean. Now today, I gotta tell you, I just think that is so cool. I mean, that the KJV should be so MTV, where there is no oxen, the crib is clean. You know, I said, pimp my crib, or... <laughs> but this was back in the 70s, so I didn't know how cool that was. <laughs> where there are no oxen, the crib is clean. I got it immediately. Sometimes I'm slow, but I got it immediately. Kids are oxen. 
where there are no oxen, the youth center is tidy. Where the youth center is tidy, there's no youth ministry. Where there's no youth ministry, there's no youth pastor. Where there's no youth pastor, there's no youth intern in training. Uh oh. <laughs> Moreover, Jesus isn't being proclaimed in his word. There are oxen because Jesus has proclaimed and his word is honored. Here's the rest of the verse. Let me repeat the beginning. Where, there's, where there are no oxen, the crib is clean. But much increase is by the strength of the ox. In other words, don't trade a clean crib for the blessing and abundant crops and great harvests that are dependent on the ox or that come because of the ox. In fact, your very subsistence is due to the ox. Hey, there's a, I, whether you know it's in the KJV whether you know it's Proverbs 14, 14, I'll bet you'll remember where the crib is clean, there are no oxen. Or where there are no oxen, the crib is clean. You'll never forget it. But there are lots of ways to apply it. For example, where there is no husband, there are no dirty socks on the floor. I mean, we could go on. This week I had a whole list, but I don't have the time to have fun. <laughs> but you might think about it in your own life. Think of the thing, you know, sometimes little things. I see people in my office because little things have become so disproportionately oversized and magnified that we lose sight of all the bounty and blessing of God that in usually a counseling situation is lost because of another person and some little thing that you just can't seem to work out. And sometimes it just looms and it grates and it becomes a source of, of toxicity. I mean, it starts to poison everything. And our attitude is just rancid. You know what rancid means? You don't even have to, but it's a bad sounding word, isn't it? Rancid. It just... And that's the point. You know, clean freaks like me. How many, how many husbands, you know, are in constant battle with their wives or their kids because they're just a clean freak? They expect maybe too much of an ox. <laughs> Sorry. That was not planned. <laughs> I didn't get that immediately. Much increase is by the strength of the ox. But listen, here's, the, here's something I really don't want you to miss. Behind it all, you know, going back to when, when Bill 
said those words, this is a good problem. The light immediately started to go on. And then those words, you know, where there are no oxen, the crib is clean. And, and it just, it all started coming together and, and something was happening in my heart. And here's what I want you to understand. It, it, it wasn't a specific verse. Well, John, you've got to do that because right here in the King James Version of 1611, in verse, you know, of Proverbs 14.4, it wasn't about that. The Word of God was already at work. I was putting it together because the Word of God is not just a collection of verses. It's much more. The Word of God is a whole change of outlook and perspective on the world and on purpose in life. And it changes everything. Jesus had changed everything, and his word was active and effective in my life already. But here was a new way in which God was opening my heart to things that, yeah, I can't find, it, I can't find a verse. I, I, Proverbs 14.4 is really a good one, I have to admit. But the rightness of the truth had a certain Jesus character that resonated with my heart as if, the Spirit of God Himself was carrying the tune of what was being said. It was touching me. There was a, a reality to it. Does that make sense to you? Do you understand? I, I don't feel like I'm sharing. It was like Jesus was speaking to me. And it wasn't because there was this great correspondence between this one verse. I mean, there's just so much in God's Word gives us common sense about putting Jesus first in my life and putting others first and not letting little things get in the way of what God wants to do. Little interferences and upsets and inconveniences. There was that kind of a sense about it. And here in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, there's a problem. And whether it's going to be a good problem or a problem that destroys the Jesus people depends on the effectiveness and the power of God's Word. The reality of it, the truth of it, will it stand the test? This was so impressed upon me this week by two verses here. Verse 1 and verse 7. And I saw something I've never seen before. And I say this because I think it's the very intent and emphasis, as it were, of Luke who relates this to us. In verse 1. Look at verse 1. Now, in these days that the number of disciples were multiplying. Just hold that in your heart for a moment. In these days that the number of disciples were multiplying. What's a disciple? 
Wait, you know, even if you have a, if you have a lexicon or diction, dictionary, you could say it's, it's a, from uh, mathetes, the word for disciple, and it means a learner or someone who is teachable. But listen, even aside from that, what, what is a disciple? It, it's, we know from Jesus it's somebody who follows, follows Jesus. Listen, if there's someone in your life that you look up to that is influential, when they say something to you, it, it, it has some gravity. It has some, some interest. You listen to it. You think about it. You kind of take it with you. And even in other situations, that word may come back to mind. It matters to you what that person thinks of you. Uh, you may uh, want to impress that person. You are definitely, in, in some ways, responsive to that person. Well, if, if that's true of just a person who's important to us in our life, what's it more than when someone says, I want to be your disciple. And that really is the background of the use of disciple here. These are disciples of Jesus. He's their master. They follow him. What he says has weight and influence. And although they're different in many ways from different backgrounds, they have a sameness because Jesus is the same to all of them. Now, look at verse 7. Notice, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem kept multiplying greatly, and a large company of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, I would have you note just a couple of specifics. First, we have the first use of the words disciple in the book of Acts in verse 1 and verse 7. Now, that, that, that's quite striking. The, the word disciple has not been used until now, and it comes in verse 1, and it comes in verse 7. And they're being used in the very same way. The number of disciples was multiplying. You see that? It's pretty striking. Uh, in, in literature, we call that an inclusio. It's a bracketing. But there's a, a slight difference in verse 7. It says, the number of disciples was multiplying greatly, or I think the NIV says rapidly, okay, but greatly or exceedingly, or how about this, very much. So in the first place, we say in the days that the disciples, the number of disciples was multiplying, okay? And then at the end, now they're multiplying greatly. You shouldn't miss that. Make sense? I mean, this is the first time the word disciple has even been used. And what's a disciple? Someone who really follows Jesus in this case. Someone who listens to what he says is influenced by him. And we know from the, the, 
the rabbis and their disciples, I mean, this, was a, this wasn't a casual thing. It had a context, a cultural context, in which it was an honor to be someone's disciple. Okay, number two. In verse 1 and verse 7, here's the second specific thing I want us to see. But in verse 1 and verse 7, the disciples, we're told, are multiplying greatly. And then we have this addition in verse 7. And, and it's as if it's a little underscored in Greek, and a great many of the priests or the great company of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, you see, in light of the introduction of the word disciples, and now it's following right on the heel of the disciples growing or multiplying, excuse me, the disciples multiplying greatly or very much, it says, and a, a great number uh, or a great company or a company of priests uh, have become obedient to the faith. Now, what does that mean? obedient to the faith. Well, it means that they are following what the others are believing. They're doing what the disciples are doing. They're believing what the disciples are believing. These have become disciples too, and what's striking is, is that right in Jerusalem, I mean, during football season, if you're playing the Green Bay Packers, you are right on the 50-yard line at Lambeau Field. This is right in Jerusalem, in the heart of Judaism. And, and how many of you have seen a picture of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives? And you picture that golden dome of the Mount of the... And it's, it's pretty majestic, isn't it? But it's nothing like it was in those days. I mean, the temple of Herod was just... We can't even imagine it. It plated as it was in gold and silver, shining in the sun, monolithic, and it's right there, right there in Jerusalem, in the shadow of that glorious temple, that priests who express their faith through the utensils and sacraments of their, of their calling of their religious duty, they are now living by faith. They're doing what the other disciples are doing. They're believing as the disciples believe. That's phenomenal. Third, what happened between verse 1 and verse 7? Now, this is very significant. I'm going to tell you what happened. First, we read it. You've got to remember, they didn't have verses, right? So when you get to this story, it's bracketed by this expression that's identical. The number of disciples was multiplying. And what happens in between? Two things. We're told, and I quote, grumbling arose. That's the very first word, grumbling arose on the part of the Greek-speaking Jews about the Aramaic-speaking Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. That's the first thing that happens in between. What's the second thing? It's found in the very opening of what is now verse 7. And the word of God kept growing. 
I know the NIV says spread. So does the New American Standard Bible, but the word is grow. It's the very same word that's used, for example, in the parable of the sower. You know what the parable of the sower is? A sower went out to sow. And what did Jesus say he was sowing? He was sowing the word of God. And despite all of the hindrances to the word of God, some fell on the path, some fell on the rocky soil, some fell in the shallow, but the weeds grew up and choked it out. Some fell on the fertile soil. And it grew. It grew. What happens when something grows? It gets bigger. It gets bigger. How does the Word of God grow? We're not talking about the Word of God changing. We're talking about it getting bigger. It got bigger. Instead of getting smaller, it got bigger. Instead of dying, it thrived. Instead of being barren, it bore a crop. Where is the Word of God planted? It's planted in disciples. And when grumbling started, I think what we're to see is that the Word of God was threatened. The growth of the Word of God. The reality of the Word of God. The truth of the Word of God. Oh, we can say all day, it's true, it's real, not a word, not a jot, not a letter will change. But what about us? We're the soil. That's the purpose of the parable. And I realize the parable isn't being mentioned here, but I think it's really relevant when you understand how the Word grows. We change. Situations change. Circumstances change. Will the Word continue to grow? And that is the point. It does. The problem is proven to be a good problem because the Word of God grows in the situation. It's not set aside or seen as irrelevant. And you might say, well, where does it say that the Word of God is being applied to this situation? Come on! It's all over it. I just think that sometimes when we think of the Word of God, we're always thinking of a specific verse or word. I had a guy, when I first went to the church in South San Francisco, he's a sweetheart of a guy, Jim, uh, excuse me, James. That tells you a little bit about his personality. I read John 3.16, and they had Bibles in the pews. If you don't know what a pew is, get back to me. But anyway, they had Bibles. And you know what Bibles they had when I came to the church? New American Standard Bible. So I read out of the New American Standard Bible. I read John 3, 16. For God so loves. And he came up to me afterwards and he, he said, uh, according to the King James Version of 1611 from Erasmus to Stephen, it is... You know, for God so loved the Word, it's loved, not loves. You know, he was really caught up and troubled by that, and and I tried to explain, but nothing could appease him, and so, you know, he he quit coming because loved versus loves. And I understand the confusion on his part, but the point is is that sometimes we get so caught up with the, the details of being right, it's almost about justifying our egos 
rather than learning and hearing and responding to the intent and the purpose of the word. And here in this situation, they grow because Jesus' people grow because of the word of God. They grow because of the word of God. They grow because the word of God wants to grow. Maybe you can throw that slide up for me. And here's the, here are three things that emerge from this passage. I'm going to do this real quickly. Oh, it's only not even 11 o'clock. We've got lots of time. Um, I love this. I told you I love uh, light savings time. Uh, Jesus' people keep it first. They keep it together. That means together they keep it. <laughs> they keep it all together, and they keep it real. And we see the priority in the relevance. Not only do the apostles say, we can't give up the priority of God's word to wait on tables. We can't set the word aside. To do, you ever heard of the tyranny of the urgent? It's a great expression, the tyranny of the urgent. It's where the important is trumped by the urgent. And that was, that was part of this problem. It threatened to trump, to overwhelm what is most important with what seems to be clamoring for attention. And the apostles had their priorities straight, and I think a lot of others did too, because nobody argued with them about that. And I think that's relevant. The Word of God was relevant to them. It was, it was not a museum piece or an artifact to be adored and appreciated as, though, as something beautiful, wear gloves, or cover it with the plastic like the couch in the favorite living room. You know what I'm talking about? And we also see the relevance when it went to choosing the seven. Men of good witness, full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. And boy, we really see that. It says Stephen was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And read, oh, by the way, next week I want you to read the rest of chapter 6, all of chapter 7, and verse 1 of chapter 8, okay? Can you do that? More than once. And I want you to ask yourself, does Stephen know his Bible? Does Stephen know the Word of God? See if he does when you read that. Okay, I'll give you the answer. You bet he does. But it's not about fighting over it. It's about following it. It's not about fighting over it. It's about following it. And these people together follow his word they respond. 
I think it's also relevant because the apostles do not let issues of, uh, I don't want to put this, they don't seem crowded. They don't seem threatened by the idea of letting some of the Greek-speaking Jews have responsibility and authority. In fact, they, they, they call it serving tables or waiting upon tables. The apostles are doing the same kind of thing, only with the Word of God and prayer. They both use the, the, the root word for deacon which is to wait on tables, to do uh, an act of menial service. You know, hard work. I just think the priority is powerful here. And they don't let anything not only get in the way of the Word, but the Word is living and real. And it, and it comes to bear and makes a difference in people's attitudes and the way they, they challenge uh, together this, this problem and they solve it. They keep it together. It unifies them. You know, one thing about the Word, um, I, I, I've been studying this for years and years and years, and I'm, I'm so grateful to be uh, at, the, at the least of the level of confidence, competence I am now in Hebrew and Greek, but I still feel like I'm just a beginner. You know, as a, as a professor and, and also as an administrator at a graduate level when it comes to putting together the curriculum for a student, and we used to do that. We actually met in the board. We said, what, what, what's the product of this seminary? What do we want to produce? What do we want a graduate to look like? You only have so many units that you get to work with, and you have to spread that out over all the kinds of things you want to do to prepare that person for their responsibilities out there on behalf of Christ in the real world. I wish that we could say they have to have a course in every book of the Bible. Wouldn't that be great? But even then, they wouldn't know enough. I'll tell you what makes the Word real and living is that it's, it's always in some way relevant because of Jesus. I, I care about this because of Jesus, and you do too. You, you can become a professor in a seminary. You can become a specialist. You can make your living publishing and lecturing. You don't have to love Jesus. All you have to do is know a lot about the Word. But there's a big difference between a disciple of Jesus and somebody who makes a reputation for himself or herself because they know a lot of stuff. What makes this relevant to me is Jesus. I wouldn't even care about it if it weren't for Jesus. And that'll always be the case in any specific situation. That's why I had us go back to 41. Why did they overcome persecution and the pain of being flogged because they counted it an honor to suffer on behalf of Jesus, the name. Why did they get up the next morning and go right back to what they had been doing? And what were they doing? They were proclaiming and teaching day after day in the temple and house to house, Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. 
And in that situation, when disciples are numerically multiplying, you know what makes disciples? Seeing disciples show allegiance to Jesus Christ. That is what inspires people. I'll bet you know that's true in your own life. And so together, these people overcame a problem it became a good problem, an improvement. And the Word of God, verse 7, right at the beginning, the Word of God kept growing. It got bigger. And how did it get bigger? Not because it changed, but because it was applied in a new way, it was influential in a new way, it was powerful in a new way in the light of that problem. They keep it real, in other words. Philip Brooks called preaching truth mediated through personality. Truth mediated through personality. I like that. Not everybody's called to preach, but in a way we all preach if the truth is mediated through our personality. Robert Weber, who's a seminary theologian, uh, uh, He's a professor of theology. He was biking in Michigan and met another biker who, like myself, he writes, was a professor of theology. In the course of our conversation by the side of the road, he said something I will never forget. Bob, all I really want in life is for the Word of God to take up residence inside me and form me into Christ-likeness. That's pretty rich. Robert Weber went on to say, Robert, Bob, this statement hit me hard because my seminary training in the Bible was never that personal. We were always asking, what does it say? And seldom, if ever, made the step into a deep personal application of how can that truth take up residence in me? That's keeping it real. Here's the converse. When a Dallas church decided to split each faction filed a lawsuit to claim the church property. A judge finally referred the matter to the higher authorities of the denomination of the church. A church court assembled to hear both sides of the case and awarded the church property to one of the two factions. The losers withdrew and formed another church in the area. During the hearing, the church courts learned that the conflict had all begun at a church dinner when a certain elder received a smaller slice of ham than a child seated next to him. Sadly, this was reported in the newspapers for everyone to read. Just imagine how the people of Dallas laughed about the situation and it brought a lot of discredit, not only to the church, but to Jesus Christ. I know that, doesn't that sound absurd? When you see a deacon, you know, in other words, someone who's got a title in the church, and he's proud of it, and he doesn't get a slice of ham that corresponds to his title, because he can see as clear as anybody that this little kid got a bigger piece. 
And he starts to grumble and one thing leads to another and people take up sides. And I just thought, wow, that is the way problems go from being a good problem where the deacon could have just said, ah, no big deal. I could use to lose a pound. Or, Sonny, you need that piece of ham more than me. Or make a joke of it and go out and spend a couple bucks and buy yourself a ham and cook it when you get home. Isn't that crazy? But isn't that what happens in our marriages? I mean, it's the toothpaste or the socks on the floor. Or something, you know, some little thing get, gets blown out of proportion and pretty soon we lose sight of the blessings and bounty of God. In marriage, Shelley and I, this month, by the way, uh, on, well, I, the date doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, send your cards and gifts, but before the t- <laughs> that's why the date doesn't matter, but yes, you're right. It matters to me. I know the date. Don't worry. But 38 years, that's almost as, as long as I've been alive. And uh, the, in, in little things, the Word of God comes to me. Not so much in chapter and verse, but that which honors Jesus Christ. You know, and, and, and the being true to the truth. I, I can't count the number of times inside uh, I was made aware when Shelley was not that she was right and I was wrong. And sometimes I told her. <laughs> Sometimes I didn't, especially when we were younger. Sometimes I would just continue to, um, you know, keep some information back so I could win the argument. Because I used to think that if I won the argument, then it became true. But as Jesus gets a hold of you, you start saying, hey, that's not... And, And then you start actually admitting it. And you say, hey, you're right. I'm wrong. Or you use these words, please forgive me. And on and on it goes. Listen, I'm just giving you some examples. The Word of God encourages our hearts when we're discouraged. It gives us perspective when we've lost perspective. There are so many ways the Word of God works in our hearts when Jesus is first and we are His disciples. And it will be true of us too. The Word of God will keep growing. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, the Word, become flesh and in our midst. Thank You, Father, for pouring out Your Spirit on us. Thank, thank You, Lord, for never leaving us or abandoning us, but always wooing and encouraging us, wanting us to... Uh, follow your son that we might become more and more like him we praise and thank you may it encourage us this week and we 
pray all of this in Jesus' matchless name and all of God's people said, God bless you. This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.